We're going to read from Scripture from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So reads the word of God. Well, do let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4, this uh, wonderful passage in the middle of the book of Ephesians. As we are doing that, let let me get you to imagine a scene. You're out for a meal at a nice restaurant. It's uh, reasonably quiet. You can hear the clink of cutlery. And uh, you become aware of a conversation at another table. And much as you try to turn to your friend and say, isn't the tiramisu lovely? You, 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 you really are listening very carefully to this other conversation, and, and it becomes super awkward, and you, you realize that there's a father and a mother with a son, and things are not going well. You gather that the son has dropped out of college. You know everything about him by this stage. Uh, he, he is sofa surfing with some of his friends, and he has evidently become a huge disappointment to his parents. And at one point, you hear the father say painfully, not out of spite or, or anger, but just painfully, Son, we have sacrificed for you and given you so much. We, we really didn't think it would turn out this way. And as you sit there, eating your mince by this stage, uh, you might have some sympathy, mightn't you? We tend to feel that those who have been the recipients of great blessing have some responsibility to respond, don't we? To use a different illustration, maybe you've heard stories of those who have been plucked out of the mountains. Maybe the Mourn Mountain Rescue Team has, has gone out on a really filthy night and up to the saddle of Donard and rescued someone with a broken leg, and they're interviewed in the Belfast Telegraph in a couple of days, and, and they say something like, 
uh, they're asked, well, how do you feel about those who came to get you on that evening? And you, they say something like, well, you know, it is their job after all. And you think, how, how ungrateful. Those who've been blessed have a responsibility to respond, don't they? Well, well, that's the sort of logic that we're looking at tonight in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians employs that, and Paul employs that in several of his letters. Typically, if there's a pattern for his letters, typically he tends to describe at the beginning of his letters the blessings that Christians receive, and then he, he sort of goes on in the later part of the letter to say, well, in the light of all of this, the sort of the so what bit, in the light of all of this, this is then how you're to live. This is the implications of all of that. It's a sort of a, a, a so what, now that this is true, so what argument. This is what you've received. This is how you're to live. We see that, for example, in, in the book of Romans. You might know uh, that, that uh, we're, we're going to start uh, all being well looking at the book of Romans in the evenings in the autumn. And, and, and there, after setting out the gospel for uh, 11 chapters, uh, all the things that, that God has, has poured into His children, as it were, uh, God, uh, Paul turns in, in chapter 12, verse 1, to the obligations that we have in, in response. And he says in 12, verse 1 of Romans, therefore, in the light of all of this, as it were, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's a real key turning point in that letter. And, and the remaining chapters of Romans then are full of, of sort of practical teaching about how our lives are to be lived. And it's the same here in Ephesians. And this evening we come to the beginning of that so what material in this letter. You can see it by the way Paul introduces it in verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's the so what. Now that everything has been said before, but what God has done, here is the implication of that. And you think of some of the things that Paul has told us that God has done for us, that this book has highlighted for us so far. We have been, if you're a Christian, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have been chosen. You've been adopted into God's family. You have been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been given an inheritance. We've been brought into this new family, this new humanity. And all of this is the gift of God and not of ourselves. We could go on to list other blessings that Paul has highlighted for us. And he's saying, in the light of all of this, so then, in the light of all of this, what should our response be? And the answer comes back in verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, a worthy life. Not that we could ever repay God for what He has done, but that we might demonstrate our gratitude by the worthy life. We would see it to be entirely appropriate, for example, that if you were a driving through Newcastle on a Sunday afternoon, and there's loads of cars there, and you come up to the traffic lights, and there's a chap with a bucket and he knocks on your window. You roll down your window and say, what do you want? And uh, he says, I'm collecting for the Morn Mountain Rescue Team. And you go, really? What, what do you have to do with that? He says, oh, last year they saved my life. It's the least I could do. 
well. That's the sort of thing that, that, that Paul is saying here. here. Here's the implication. You've been rescued. What should that look like in your life? And, and this thought of, of theological truth leading to an outworking and lifestyle is expressed sometimes in all sorts of little sayings and, and all sorts of ways. Theology to practicality, doctrine to duty, our wealth to our walk, exposition to exhortation, indicative to imperative. You get the idea. And let's just think about this. It tells us that theological truth and practical outworking are both necessary. In fact, there's really to be little division between them. It's not just enough to to cram our heads with theory. We have to not only be able to articulate theological truth, but it's got to lead somewhere. The Bible would, would say to us, if all that we can do is, is quote, theory, well, well, where does that lead to? What is it showing in your life? And at the same time, practicality without the underpinning of the truth is an imbalance too, and it often runs into the ground. Both of these things are necessary. Well, here we see the outworking of the truths that Paul has shared, uh, particularly tonight in three areas. And we're going to see what a worthy life looks like. What does a worthy life look like? Well, first of all, unity. First of all, unity. In many ways, the theme of unity, you'll see from the NIV chapter heading uh, or section heading, in many ways, the theme of unity runs right through all that we're looking at tonight, but it is particularly where Paul starts. It's summed up in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does a worthy life look like? Well, first of all, it shows itself in unity with one's brothers and sisters. Now, I imagine that this is probably not where we would start. If we were to answer the question, what does a worthy life look like for a Christian? We, we might start with prayer or holiness or witness. Those are all good things, part of what a worthy life should be. But here the Bible begins with unity, it begins with how we are with one another. And we've often missed this, haven't we? we we've often We've often put less value on unity and those who foster unity than we ought to. We have sometimes allowed those who, who seem to foster division to, to have significant roles within congregations. Some of us have been bruised because of some of those stories. And we put people who foster congregations into positions of responsibility, and then we wonder why everything goes wrong. But unity, according to this passage, is part of what a worthy life looks like. And it's the first one that Paul highlights. It's one of the, the key responsibilities of a Christian as we respond to the grace of God in our lives. It is to foster and build unity. In fact, as I was thinking of this, we realize that our church has put this into the very job description of those who are to be leaders within our church. It's in our code as to what our elders are supposed to do. Let me read you a little bit of, of our code. Never thought we'd be doing that, but here we are. Uh, the duty of ruling elders as members of Kirk Session is to work together with the minister in the oversight and government of the congregation and here it comes, for the upbuilding of God's people in spiritual fruitfulness and holy concord. Holy concord. 
That's not the big pointy nose plane that flies, that used to fly across the Atlantic. It's that idea of fellowship, of, of harmony, of unity, and for the extension of Christ's kingdom amongst all people. Building us up, keeping us together, witnessing to the world. Key to leadership, our code says. Now, you can see here that the, the Bible lays out some very clear characteristics that are necessary for unity. You see in verse 2, it says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So, these are qualities that are to be exercised in all of our lives so that unity will flourish. And the way that this is described here, I think you'll see, implies that it is going to be easy for our unity to be disrupted, isn't it? And it needs a certain character, a character development, a character quality from all of us to maintain it. There are things about us that will cause each other to be irritated. I'm playing my part in that, so I'm playing my part in that. Let's just, just, let's just leave it at that. Th th there are things about us that will, that will cause us to irritate each other. And we need, on the one hand, to minimize that within our own lives. But then whenever we are irritated, we need to, as it says here, bear with each other in love. Bear with each other in love. So, hear us here. There are times when things need to be dealt with and confronted. But many things, and many things that sometimes end up damaging unity, could just be born, sucked up. It's often the little irritations that are not born that lead to a loss of unity. And friends, I, I'm privileged, we are privileged that we are saying this as a preventative rather than a corrective within the life of Hill Street. But we need to hear it. There's a famous story, I've used it before, uh, of, uh, it's one of James Montgomery Boyce's illustrations. It's a church split that ended up in the courts in the States. Uh, one half of the congregation split from the other half, and they sought to get rights for the building. And in the course of the court case, the origin of the split came out. And what happened was that a church fellowship meal, a fellowship meal of all things, a long-standing member was sitting beside a young person, and the young person got two slices of ham. And the long-standing member only got one slice of ham. And, 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 and somehow, from that little irritation, which wasn't born, church ended up in court, split, and the papers had a field day. What were they doing? When each of those people came to the fellowship meal, probably, with a Bible under their arm that had that verse in it, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another are things that foster Christian unity. The absence of them leads to disunity. Now, there's something that we should uh, notice here uh, as we think about unity that should really encourage us, and that is that it is something that God has given us rather than something we need to achieve. You see verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Now, some of that's a little bit complicated, but it's really saying that you've been brought into to one people. You are one people. God is not divided. You've been baptized into one church. There is one faith. There is only one Lord, and this unity is what you've been brought into. You are one. In other words, you don't have to achieve it as if it's something unnatural. It is something that you have and you are to express. You see that it says here, keep the unity of the Spirit in verse 3. We don't start off as, as enemies. We don't even start off as neutral with one another. If you're a believer here, we're told that we start off with a bond with each other. It's not a humanly generated thing. We've been given a bond by the Spirit of God who is indwelling us, the one Spirit within each believer. We have a unity. Our job is to reflect that. And so, a, a worthy life, according to Ephesians, begins with unity. Secondly, <clears throat> a worthy life involves ministry, ministry, or, or we might use the word service. Ministry and service are just uh, two words for the same thing. Uh, the, the worthy life means service. And before we become Christians, it might be natural. Some people who are not Christians are incredibly servant-hearted, but it might be natural for us before we are Christians to, to think, how can I serve myself? What's in this for me? But when Christ, who is the servant king, comes to indwell us by His Spirit when we are converted, then it ought to be natural for us to ask, how can I serve? And especially, how can I serve my brothers and sisters? And what Paul tells us here is that we have been given gifts to do just that. Paul has been saying in verse 4 that there's one body and one spirit. And then having made that point, he makes an equally important qualifying point and that is that we're not all the same. There's not only unity, but there is diversity. Verse 7, to each one of us, uh, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We've been given grace. And here, the grace is the ability to do what we've been called to do. We've been given grace in that we've been given gifts. And Paul goes on to uh, refer to gifts in the following verses. Now, what, what he says, again, maybe seems just a little bit odd at first glance. Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, what's happening here is that Psalm 68 is being quoted by Paul. And in that psalm, God is pictured as a conquering king who comes to Zion after winning a battle. And in those days, a returning king would come home to the city, and there would be great acclaim, and he and his troops would march into the city, and they would lead captives in their train, as we sometimes sing. They would lead a procession of uh, the loot that they had got from the uh, cities that they defeated, but also the prisoners that they had got from the, uh, the, the cities that they defeated. Defeated kings, perhaps. And Psalm 68 says that he received gifts from men. In other words, he received tributes. And then what happens then 
uh, what would have happened then was that the king would have said, well, look, I've got all these things here, and he shares them out with his supporters. They're for the blessing of, of the whole people. And what Paul does is he takes that psalm, that picture of our conquering king, and he says that Jesus has given gifts to us. He has been victorious, and he has poured out his gifts generously upon the church. By the way, you should notice if you're somebody who's wondering about uh, about the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, where does the Bible talk about the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ? It just just assumes it in so many places. And and one of the things that, that indicates that is that Paul, for example, is really happy to take Old Testament passages that refer to God and to speak of them as if they refer to Jesus. Why? Because he has figured out that Jesus is indeed God. It's a powerful argument for the divinity of Christ. So what's this saying? Jesus is the conquering king, and he has given gifts to his church. God has, if you're a Christian, God has specially shaped you and given you gifts in order, not that you might feel happy about yourself, but that you might bless the church. And therein probably lies your happiness. And that is why we need to plug into a particular church family. Really, really important. You've got to be known and you've got to know the people around you in order to serve them like this. And we should see here that there's a particular mechanism that God has provided for his church in order to drive that service mentality. Verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, works of ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, we don't have time to go into this in great detail, but this is hugely important. What all of these gifts have in in common here, apostles and prophets and evangelists and so on, is that they are all tied up with the Word of God. They're Word gifts. Apostles and prophets brought the word of God to the church. They're no longer operative. The word has been left, as it were, with the church. The evangelists apply the word to the outsider. And the pastor-teacher, and it probably is one person in mind here, the pastor-teacher applies it, well, largely to the church. And you see, it is that application of the Word is that presence of the Word within the church that equips the church to serve. Part of the reason that we come to church is, yes, to worship, but also to be filled up and equipped for service. I was with Katrina in the car yesterday. I knew that we had a a fairly bit of driving to do today, and I, I don't always get this right, but yesterday I happened to look down at the dashboard in the car, and the fuel gauge was pretty much empty. And, and so I said, look, we, we, we've got to fill this car up because we've got lots to do tomorrow and at the start of the week so that we'd be ready for what lies ahead. And Sundays are like that. It's like pulling in for your cheap diesel so that you're filled up because you're going out to serve. You're going out to be a, a blessing in your workplace. You're going out to encourage your believing friends who need encouraged. And you're coming here to have the Word of God fill you up, to remind you of who you are, to remind you of what 
God has done for you, to remind you that his smile is upon you and that his verdict over your life has been given and, and you work out of a position of acceptance and, and blessing and that you're being sent out into a needy world as his ambassador. And now you say, you walk out and you go, right, now I'm, I'm filled up and I'm ready to serve. And we don't always get that right, but that's what we try to do. And if you start to think of the dynamic of that and you think, well, who's doing what within the church? You notice that it is not the ministers who minister, but it is the ministers who equip so that God's people can minister. You see that? that you really need to think about that quite a wee bit. If you look at the, 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 the football picture, we've said this before, it is not that that the congregation of God's people is sitting in the stands cheering on a few employed staff members who are doing all the playing. That wouldn't go so well if that was the case. It is that, that the, the, the ministers are, are, are player managers who are encouraging all the people on the pitch to play well. And who's in the, the stands? Well, if anything, God's in the stands. One of the marks of a worthy life is service. God's called. Why is he not taking you to heaven? He's left you here to serve. Unity, service. And then lastly, maturity. Here's the last element of a worthy life, a journey towards maturity. Look at verse 13. So that the, the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The goal God has for us is maturity. Now, you notice that it's a together pursuit. It's not an individual thing. Though we need to be mature individually and on that pathway, each of us ourselves, it is something that we need each other to attain. And the alternative is that we stay as children. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. You see, to, to, to not, there's so much we could say here, but, but to not be mature, to not be growing in your faith, is to be left at the mercy of every idea and ism that this world throws at us. Every fad that comes along either captures us or cows us. And we don't want that. There's no stability in that. There's no progress in that. You know, if you're, you're coming along and you're, 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 you're driving along the coast somewhere and you see one of those little yachts and it's, it's trying to beat into the wind and the winds are constantly changing. They're maybe coming off the mountains or something and there's a, clearly an inexperienced captain there and, and, and the yacht just seems to be making no progress at all. It can't go to where it needs to go. And so many of us have known the frustration of that, of just not being able to get there. And part of the answer is that we want to grow in maturity. Verse 15, instead, not like the little yacht that's beating its way up the coast, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, so many of the themes that we've 
been seeing already are coming together here, aren't there? Everyone's involved. Each part is doing its work. Every supporting ligament. It's a body image. The truth of God's word is at the center of it all, isn't it? This thing that God is doing. We're speaking the truth in love. You see what's implied there again? In love, the pastor teacher is feeding the flock. The flock is speaking the truth to one another in love, and then speaking the truth in love to the world, to a needy world. And the Word of God is like the energy of the whole body. It's the glucose of the whole body. It's the nourishment that's flowing flowing around it. And Christ is the head, directing the whole thing, and also our object. He is the measure of maturity. So we can't exceed Him or do better than Him. We cannot be mature if we're different from Him. In other words, if we love something that He doesn't love, we're not mature, are we? We need to be like Him. So maturity is a beautiful picture with every part doing its work. We come back to unity. Can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this without each other. One of my friends uh, spent yesterday at the Henley Regatta. I don't know if you know what the Henley Regatta is. I didn't really know much about it, I confess. It's a famous rowing regatta on the Thames. And he sent us a, he, he made the terrible mistake of sending us a picture of how he looked into a little WhatsApp group that I'm part of. And there he was. In fact, he looked a little bit like me uh, with his blazer and his chinos, but he had a straw hat on, like a boating hat. And we made fun of him. And, uh, and then he sent us a link to some of the coverage. And, and, and I clicked on to it. I watched a few minutes off it. And for a while, the camera... Uh, followed one of the boats with, with half a dozen rowers in it. And it was absolutely mesmerizing. There they were. They were in perfect harmony. Some of you know this. But, but every stroke was synchronized. The blades dipped in and out of the water with hardly a ripple. And the course was arrow straight. There were six of them, but they operated as every part was doing its work. They operated as one. What an effort they'd been able to make to do that. Hadn't happened overnight. And here we are, congregation of God's people. Some of you visiting from other congregations of God's people. And God has blessed us so much. Redeemed, forgiven, chosen, called. How should we respond? In the fellowships to which we belong with worthy lives. Lives that foster unity amongst God's people. Lives that pour themselves out in services. They're energized by the Word of God. And lives that grow towards maturity. Every part doing its work. And all for the glory of the Lord. Are you on board? Is this your goal? It is the Lord's desire for his people. Let's pray that it might be our experience. Let's pray together.